long before the Abbey Auditorium heard that music in a new production of She Stoops to Conquer, the idea of staging the play in a new setting started with the director, Joe Dowling. Well, I think the main reason for wanting to do a play like She Stoops to Conquer is because of the um, period in which it's set, first and foremost, and the kind of pleasure that this sort of comedy brings to an enormous number of people. Uh, I think that it's an enduring comedy, a comedy which um, people can identify with in spite of the fact that it's written uh, so many years ago. I think it has the, the, the enduring qualities of, of any classic. So that when you come to approach a classic, you obviously think of the kind of enjoyment people are going to get out of it, first and foremost. And, and secondly, I think the feeling that you have when you, when you uh, are working on a play like this, of being somehow in touch with with the past and somehow in touch with, with sort of a continuing tradition uh, of playwriting, uh, which I think is quite important. But I think primarily the reason one does any play is because you feel audiences are going to enjoy it, and that's the reason why we decided to do She Stoops to Conquer. We also felt, I think, that uh, She Stoops to Conquer is regarded uh, as a classic of the English theatre, but of course Goldsmith was Irish, and we're reclaiming it um, as an Irish classic. Responsible for the technical side of the production is Brian Collins. The first two people that really start working on any production is the director and designer. They get together possibly two months before a show goes into rehearsal and obviously they've read the scripts and studied it. And then um, they've got to get together and sort of a marriage of ideas of how uh, the play is going to be presented set-wise and that. So after a period of uh, working together, the director and the designer, the designer eventually produces a three-dimensional model. It's a scale model of this setting. Uh, we normally use a half-inch to the foot scale. And the first thing then, this is when I come into um, the picture for the first time, the, uh, the designer would present the model to me. Uh, occasionally he will have a finished model or very often during the actual design he may not be sure of some technical things how they would work or if they would work or he they might be looking for ideas so uh, I might be in on the actual design and uh, making suggestions particularly if there's a scene change or something like that uh, we don't have very little space in the abbey either off stage while the stage itself looks very large the actual uh, wing space and scene dock are tiny. So if you get a play with a number of scene changes, uh, we often have an awful lot of uh, technical problems on how to, to work out the scene changes. Set design is by Frank Conway. So the idea is really that um, the first thing the audience see when they come in is, is an empty stage, but an empty 18th century stage, or certainly the kind of feel of an 18th century stage. So what we have is the Baroque Prasini march the traditional floor, um, the wings either side, which are, are really galleries, um, all in th the period kind of wooden um, construction. And really, I suppose, what we were trying to create was to... Um, just a certain kind of magic. And the idea is that this flat, which is the back of a flat, and which has... Um, she stoops to conquer Act One, Scene One, OP2 written on it as a very theatrical kind of start to the play that this slides on on the track which run across stage and as it goes on um, it reveals 
A, the sort of characters in the play, and B, also the scenery, will then sort of immediately come in. In other words, that the whole thing is a very split-second kind of transformation from this empty stage into a, into a, you know, just a total kind of wing flats, back cloth, um, furniture, and hopefully in, 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 as I said, split seconds. Um, and the scene changes, as I said, sort of taking the 18th century thing, make it very easy because what they did was they had tracks running right across the stage, and they were guided at the top, and um, they literally just shove them across and swap them with another one. Finding the people for the roles is the director's task. The major problem about casting any play is to get it right, I suppose. Um, and that really means getting the sort of person who uh, you, as director, feel will be right and that you can work with and that will work well in the part. Um, and of course, I mean, all casting is subjective. I mean, for every actor that you think is good, somebody else is going to think that they're not right for the part. And you've got, it's all a matter of subjective opinion, and that's what makes it a difficult area. But in terms of working in the Abbey, it isn't as difficult, perhaps, as, as it might be in the freelance world where you've got a sort of an enormous pool to choose from. Because here we have a regular resident company who play uh, all the year round, and therefore it's a matter of choosing from a group of people. Um, now, in this particular instance, we were very fortunate that. Um, uh, we had some people in the company who are ideally suited for the particular parts, no matter how subjective or objective one is. Uh, Philip O'Flynn, who's playing Mr Hardcastle, and couldn't be better cast, in my view, because of the qualities he them, the enormous comic qualities that he has. Uh, and, uh, I, I mean, it, it, just in passing to mention a Newsweek report uh, of our recent tour of The Shadow of a Gunman, which described Philip O'Flynn as one of the great comic actors of the world. I mean, and that's the kind of quality we're talking about there. And we're f also fortunate that Joan O'Hara has just rejoined us as a member of the company, and she'll play Mrs Hardcastle. So it was a perfect combination, and it didn't take a great deal of imagination or ingenuity on my part uh, to find that combination, because they were there under my nose. And for Tony Lumpkin, um, I, I've worked very often with Eamon Morrissey in the past, and he and I worked very well together, and I think he's a superb comedian, a man of... Uh, a, a marvellous talent um, and he's also a member of our company um, and as I say I worked with him before and indeed when this play was done in the Irish Theatre Company a couple of years ago it didn't actually play in Dublin, it played uh, around the country, uh, Eamon Morrissey played Tony Lumpkin and it seemed very natural that he should play it again because he was a marvellous choice for it then and he remains a marvellous choice for it. Some of our younger players have also been making a very considerable reputation here over the last couple of years and uh, Stephen Brennan, Fiona McConaughey, Ingrid Craigie and Malcolm Douglas are the four the lovers and uh, they, they're they playing these parts I think again I think well cast within our company and, and uh, so it's a very strong cast uh, in terms of Abbey actors and, and I think a cast that will bring a great deal of their own individuality to it and I think that's the important thing in casting I find is to try not only to get the people who will be right for the parts but also people who will bring something original something fresh to it themselves and not merely uh, sort of work from the, the, the text but actually draw a great deal from, from within themselves and all of these people are very individual and I think also um, very talented. So the cast is together, then? Um, starting with the first reading where we read the play, everybody reads the play and gets sort of familiar with the ideas behind the production, with the sort of set, with the way in which we're, we're approaching it and also perhaps uh, any questions that might have about the period or about the way in which we try and explain and understand. And then gradually we just piece the thing together bit by bit, scene by scene, line by line, word by word, every single 
every of it exam examined in great detail every single character developed from the sort of from the page to the stage as it were the sense of how the character would react to situations the sort of timing the way the way in which the detail is added the sort of um, comic flavour that you can get from particular lines or so on. And all this takes an enormous amount of time and it requires an enormous amount of patience and so on. But it's essential that it's done and that it's done with thoroughness. And uh, as I say, we rehearse a great deal here and, and I'm personally a great believer in the, the, the rehearsals. I don't accept the sort of view, which I think is essentially derives from a, a kind of an amateur view of the theatre, that it, it'll be all right on the night and it'll just happen. It doesn't ever happen. It all, it's sort of 99% of it is perspiration and the 1% inspiration, if you don't have that, you've got nothing. But at the same time, it's only a very small section of it. It's, it's constant work. The players get together for a first reading. Allow me to introduce Miss Constance Neville. A mistress's boy, but how? Sir? Do 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 do. Happen Happening to dine in, in the neighbourhood. We. They called to take fresh horses. They called to take fresh horses. Wasn't it lucky? Wasn't it lucky? Charles, wasn't it most fortunate? Most, oh, uh, and counterfortunate. Uh, but uh, does Miss Hardcastle know I am here? Yes. Oh yes. Yes. Oh the devil! Oh most fortunate. But our dresses, George, in disorder, disarray. What if we should postpone this happiness until tomorrow? By no means, the sir. The more joyful tomorrow, more happy, fortunate, more uh, proper George in her own house. And besides, here she is. <gasps> Hastings, you are to assist. Support me, George. Oh, I shall be most confoundedly ridiculous. It's but a matter of the first plunge and all is over. She's but a woman, you know. Oh, but she, above all, that I dread most to encounter. Um, Miss Hardcastle, Mr. Marlowe. I'm delighted to introduce two people who only want to know to esteem each other. Now, meeting my modest gentleman with a demure face and quite in his own manner. Sir, how do you do? I'm glad of your safe arrival, sir. Well, how important are rehearsals? Stephen Brennan. Well, obviously, when you come to rehearsals, the, uh, the director is your audience. You've got to trust your director because he's, he's looking at the what you're presenting and he's got to be the judge, the final arbiter if you like. Now a good director will not be a dictator he will be trying to um, he'll be trying to convince you <laughs> of his overall idea of the play and, and how he wants it done and, and what he thinks is right and uh, you will be bringing your own particular stamp to the character and to the performance and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a 50-50 business. I mean, a, a good director will listen to you and will allow you to develop and expand and will just nudge you in the right direction, really. And uh, a lot of discussion will take place between actor and director as to the whys and the wherefores and things are tried and thrown out and I agree with something that Joe says to me or I don't and we discuss it and we... I mean, we're both looking for the best possible end product, so uh, it's very much a combined effort. But you do have to, I do have to trust Joe's judgment, finally. I love rehearsals. I think rehearsals are the, not the best time, because when, when you actually put on the play, then it starts to grow with an audience, and that's very exciting, if it works, because you think you have your performance ready, but then it's really about two and a half weeks into a production that you really feel that you can 
not control the audience, but that you are totally at ease with your character and with the play. Um, the atmosphere in rehearsals is very important, I think. I, I like working with Joe a lot because he allows things to develop and he listens to you and lets you try out your own ideas and doesn't impose his preconceived ideas on you before you've got to that point. I, mean, I don't come to rehearsals knowing all my lines and have, having worked out my character completely because you can, I don't think you can do that because your character must develop in relation to the other people on stage with you. And uh, that's the exciting thing, one of the exciting things, I think. Ingrid Craigie, who plays Constance Neville. Philippa Flynn is Mr Hardcastle. We're very fortunate in this play. We've got six weeks rehearsal. Um, nothing. We had an old English professor in in college, and he used to say, "Gentlemen, nothing will make up for lack of familiarity with the text." The same thing applies to to a play. And six weeks rehearsal is very generous. We, you know, it's it's quite good. And we rehearse. Those of us who aren't playing at night rehearse all day, so we we've got plenty of time to do scenes. Um, in depth and work on them hard and so on and so forth. But it show, that, that shows because familiarity with the text, uh, <clears throat> personally, um, I have to work very hard on, on the lines. Some people uh, are fortunate, they have very uh, almost photographic memories and they can learn lines very quickly. I can't learn lines very quickly, I just haven't got this ability. I've got to, to um, go home, work hard on lines and really have my, somebody hear my lines and, and do it again and again and again until I know it. The funny thing about it is when I do know it, I can seemingly, seemingly I remember better than people who learn uh, quickly and then they forget quickly. I mean, they don't forget during the run of the play, but if, if you were putting a play on in six months' time, they'd have to re start to relearn it while it would come back to me very quickly. That's just a, a personal thing. Some people are like that, some people aren't like that. But I'd prefer to be the other way, frankly, because I'd have to work less hard on lines. But that's the situation. Um, things, of course, develop in rehearsal. That's, that's, if, you, if you keep doing something, do something three or four times, something, there's a, a chemistry starts, something starts to develop between you and the other person. Then you've got the director to say, well, I think this or I think that or I think the other. And that's the way it's done. It's not a big secret. It's not a big deal. It's just a question of, uh, largely, like in most things in life, a question of common sense. This is how Joan O'Hara approaches her part as Mrs Hardcastle. With a part like this that seems very obvious when one reads it, I jump in <laughs> at the deep end at the beginning and appear to get the whole thing. But in fact, I have to unravel all that as the rehearsals progress. I have to retrace my steps and uh, disassemble, if there's such a word, the whole thing and start to build it again. I believe that the master is the playwright. And if he's a poor playwright, well, that's just your hard cheese as an actor. But your job is to interpret the playwright and not to be taking liberties. Uh, that's a big statement. Sometimes my own might bend that a trifle if you have to. But with Goldsmith, he is a master. I know we have a... It's slightly adapted to Ireland, but I don't think that distorts it in this instance. Because he was Irish, and perhaps he would have set it in Ireland if he hadn't been living in England then, if all drama wasn't geared to there at the time. Um, but we are, we are interpreters, and any, anything that's there is in, came from Goldsmith's head, and it's obviously in the line, so we just, if you get into it, then it comes out through you like a medium. 
Well, I tend to try and start from a sort of a neutral base and build up on that. Like you, not not so far as trying limps and squints and things like that, and building them up and putting them on. But uh, you just you find out you take aspects that come out of the text. Like there's always a certain amount of information that you can get from a text, and then you add that with your own ideas and what the director has, and eventually it sort of congeals into a sort of mass. And then as you get into rehearsing the play without scripts and you know moving it around the stage, you begin to to batter that mass into a sort of shape. It's you know, and eventually the finished product comes out. You hope, and it's. It's finished off with a wig or a costume or you know whatever or makeup too is very important. And eventually, you should come out with a rounded character if you're lucky. Malcolm Douglas, who plays George Hastings, while rehearsals continue, Jolyon Jackson is in his studio working on the incidental music. Well, the first tune um, was done on the harpsichord and came out. Well, not a real harpsichord, on an electronic harpsichord, and uh, came out like this. So <coughs> that's the first part of it, and then I thought that it'd be nice to have some sort of bass instrument to it and uh, I went for a bassoon uh, sound which again was a a synthesizer and uh, this is it with the with the synthesizer with the bassoon added After that, um, I think the next thing was a trumpety sound to uh, accentuate the tune somewhat. And this this then sounded like this. After that, I felt it needed some sort of uh, harp-like instrument to accentuate certain parts of it. And uh, here it comes. was uh, a very low bass part which uh, again will fill the whole thing I felt at that stage it it needed filling out the bottom part of it needed filling out so there's a very low 
I don't know, it, the nearest thing would be a double bass, except that it's lower, lower than a double bass. Then uh, a harmony part was needed, so I then started working on a flute sound, and uh, I, after a long time I discovered a way of playing the synthesizer combined w with uh, setting it up, which, it, which got quite a, quite a reasonable uh, flute sound. And here it is. Meanwhile, back at the Abbey. The production we're working on at the moment, She Stoops to Conquer by Oliver Goldsmith, um, is what we're doing actually, is trying to create a, an 18th century uh, stage uh, in the Abbey, which is a 20th century theatre. Uh, this is lovely because normally um, uh, the settings we do here are very three-dimensional and solid type of settings which uh, seem to be the style, or has been the style in the theatre now for 10 years or more. But uh, on this, for this production we're actually using two-dimensional painted backcloths and uh, canvas painted flats. Now we haven't seen a canvas flat or a backcloth in the Abbey for <laughs> 10 years or more. So it's lovely um, to see this type of uh, scenery again. It is, of course, been done in the style that the, the play is set in. Production manager, Brian Collins. Designer, Frank Conway. I realised that the, the most important thing was going to be the painting of it. Because it is taken the whole um, idea of flats which come on from off stage, on stage, and creating a whole atmosphere and feeling with the painting of those flats. And um, I went immediately to Gainsborough and looked at his stuff, which I think is lovely, and really sort of used that as a basis on which then to go on. So it's like, you know, starting with 18th century theatre, researching that, then looking to somebody like Gainsborough, who was a, a, obviously a great artist of, of the age and who seemed to sort of connect with the kind of thing that we wanted. the Abbey stage, uh, right against the back wall, uh, up in the, in the flies. We can see the auditorium uh, way below us, and uh, there, there's a bridge across the back wall, and right against the back wall, there, there's the paint frame, which uh, you just heard the sound of. It's 48 foot wide by 28 high. And on that frame, at the moment, there are flats, which are roughly 16 foot by 8 foot wide, which are the wing flats for She Stoops to Conquer. Um, and, well, for this show, we have three backdrops, three cloths, and about, I think there are 16 flats altogether. Um... The one you see there, that's the inn scene, um, which is sort of roughly half done at the moment. And um, 
why the paint frame? Why the, the noise you heard? Um, I stand on this bridge and press the button, and the frame lowers or raises to whatever level I want to work on at any particular moment. Scenic artist Eddie Doyle. Stage manager John Sanford and master carpenter Paddy Rose discuss problems on the set. Oh, by the way, Paddy, the, um, the rake for, for this one, what are we going to do about it? Uh, um, I know at the moment we've got the best part of it, but the last two sections are going to be so big we're going to have difficulty getting it through the floor. Any suggestions? Well, the hatch, uh, if we operate the hatch properly and uh, uh, we sling it properly, we should be able to get it diagonally down through oh, the of course, floor yes, hatch. I forgot about that. How right you are. <coughs> and uh, any, uh, the larger sections we had to cut split into, we could not possibly get them out of yeah, the carpenter yeah. shop and down on stage. And of course it's just as well because yeah. the boys wouldn't be able to manhandle them anyway. You, you know how difficult it is when, yeah, when yeah. You know, we got a changeover of a show between the, the hostage and she stoops yeah. uh, for rehearsal a week. So I think so uh, we'll settle on that. We'll split it in two sections. Mm. Would you agree that, to that? Yeah, that, I do indeed. That, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. perfect. Um, a thought I've had about that too is uh, to match the tracking from the bars to the, the rake on the floor. How, how are you actually going to cope with it? Just going to put a, um, a metal section in, is it? No, we can... Uh, uh, when these saddles go on the actual hanging bars, do you see, we can uh, braille them downstage or upstage as necessary yeah, to get them in line with the track. Yeah, uh, but how do we handle the floor section of it? Uh, how do we actually run in... A groove in the floor. Have, have oh, you, there um, is. Uh, we uh, we have uh, already built ours. There's a, a, a three-quarter-inch groove in the floor, which is split uh, into three-eighths uh, quarter-inch sections with a divider of a quarter of an inch between, which the guide will slide in. You see. Well, and and, um, uh, and the, the metal are these metal guides that you're talking about? Metal no, guides, yes. Metal guides, which yeah. we had made specially for the job. And we're using the... And now to a quieter part of the theatre where Joe Taylor is working on the costumes. Well, the whole idea started well over a year ago when Frank designed a show called Rivals at the Greenwich Theatre in London where the whole set and concept, the whole general concept of the show was based on Rowlandson watercolour paintings and drawings. And therefore, rather than just stopping at using watercolour as, as a way of um, putting over scenery, he decided to take it further and um, incorporate the costumes so they were moving, like a big moving picture, really, big moving watercolour. And really, it's absolutely the same basis as that. It's not obviously the Rowlandson thing, because it's a whole different sort of social background. It's... But again, we've taken some other um, painterly source, i.e. Gainsborough, with this one. And there was great, actually, at the time last year, I went to see a Gainsborough exhibition, which helped enormously in all our books, all of the sources of our costume reference. Anyway, it's all Gainsborough, and the colours are Gainsborough, watercolours and... And that's exactly what, I mean, it's the same this year, what sort of... 
we're working the costumes in with the scenery. It's a very painterly set. And hopefully it'll, it'll work exactly as it did last year, as a moving picture, as a moving painting. And again, it's very hard to look at it just as a, an individual aspect of it. You'll have to see the whole thing moving together. The costumes together. I mean, that's, that's always the hardest bit, in actual fact, when you're working on one of these. And, I mean, I'm following the costume drawings like this constants. I'm painting constants here. And the whole basic thing is the fact she's pale blue, this whole blueness as opposed to Kate being warm and pink and... And, uh, but you just all the time have to keep in your head this whole image of it all working together and then suddenly you realise you're going too blue just, just trying to remember all the other characters and I've got so much blue and I've got so much it's just as important as the, just the individual costumes is the, is the fact that bearing everybody else in mind While all these activities were in progress this is what was happening in the rehearsal room Right, let's hold it a second. I think, to Malcolm, when you come back after, he says, what is going on over there? That if, the, if you could definitely, we could see it's an act. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A match of such a thing has happened. I can't get over it. You know what I mean? So yeah. that it just, it's... Yeah, it, 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 I mean, he's not a good actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the character. I mean the character. I do mean the character. <laughs> but, but if it's very definitely sort of, good heavens, my goodness... So that, it, I mean, you were going, yeah. what, what, what? And then the drop, when you hear it's the mistresses, mm. should be bigger. Yeah. And I think that first do-do-do-do-do is too quick. It's too sudden. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it should be paralysed, immobile, because it's the first time we hear the phrase, and you're using it so often, I think it should be immobilised by the, the sight of her. Yeah. For a second, just for, for a brief second. So that means literally kind of, you're face-to-face -face with her. I mean, you haven't even got the opportunity to go behind his back. Do you know what I mean? So, and then the... What the hell do I say? What am I going to say? And then all that comes out is do 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 do. Maybe if, if that was broken by us, the do 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 do. do, do? Yeah, like I wouldn't think Mr. No, Brennan no. like that. No, but I mean, we we have a look at God. Here he goes and, and quickly got to say something. No, no, no. I think it'll. No. I think no. <laughs> I think it'll hold. I think it'll hold. But it just needs a second. You see, what's happening at the moment is that you sort of, but you see, it coming straight in on it, and I don't yeah. think it's it's making the impact because it's the first one. You see. Yeah, I'm just wondering if I do if I do that, is it making it the same as the second time? With her I don't know, because the second one comes out of silences. This one, I don't mean a silence. I just mean that it's no, no. literally kind of gone. Do, 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 do. You know, it's a kind of a, a panic reaction. Detailed examination of an important scene, and as well as all this, Mavis Ascot was called in to assist with dance and movement. Jerry, we, we sort of have developed uh, a, a slight motif of Jerry actually chasing Pimple, the character. 
chasing. So a little bit of rivalry between them oh, okay. is possible. Also, John is a stable boy who, who sticks to high heaven of the things of the stable. And uh, he can, we could get something out of that. And the cook is very cross at having to produce all this food yeah. uh, at the last minute. And Mrs. Hardcastle is in a total flurry. Right. After that's up to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and are there, there are bits of um, ornaments and things? There can be. I mean, we, we, we can have really whatever, whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, we were sort of thinking in terms of very domestic things like sheets, pillowcases, um, yeah. bolsters, bed warmers, all those kind of things. That are made. So we have a play, but the public have got to know about it. Deirdre McQuillan talking to Brendan Foreman about the poster he has designed for the show. So you bring that over to the printers this afternoon and we'll have the poster then by Monday. We'll the poster early next week, yes. Yeah. And uh, I'll copy the artwork before I bring it over and I can uh, do uh, black and white enlargements for the front. Yes, maybe you'd colour them in as well. So we Yeah, I could hand colour them in, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also have to do the... Um, if you the do the, uh, the, the schools, well. yes, the leaflet for the schools, which is important, so you'll reduce the artwork. When do you think you could get that done? I can get that done by the end of this week, by tomorrow. Yes, well, I'd like, I wouldn't like to have it going out any later than next Monday, because that only gives them a week. You'd like really. it printed by next Monday? Yes, if possible. I mean, we um, have the, um, you have all the copy for you know, the description the copy, of the play yeah. and who's in it and so on. I can get the artwork done then tomorrow and print it Thursday, Friday. Fine. And the ad for the Irish Times, the front page of the Irish Times. That could be done this afternoon. That. You do the artwork for that this afternoon. Fine. I'll take all the stuff from the poster, the type and the illustration. Fine. As it is That's on great. the poster, just rearranged for the ad. There's nothing else, I think, really. It's Not plenty to keep me going. <laughs> As opening night approaches, the false proscenium, an important part of the set, is raised. Okay, in the flies. Now take it out. Nice and gentle. Be very gentle with it. It's going to be heavy until you get up to the cradle. Okay, Lee, come on. Okay, Liam. And John, yeah. what's the way The visual on? impact is developed by the lighting plot. Leslie Scott. She stoops to okay. conquer. Now, here's an example of a play where the director decided to recreate the atmosphere of the, the theatre as it would have been at the time when the play was first produced. And that, of course, meant candles in the footlights, candelabra hanging from the ceilings, painted scenery wings moving in and out. In general, there was a, it was a, a lovely, soft glow, and it brought with it makeup that had to emphasise the face and sort of put shadows back where they ought to be. And in general, it's a special atmosphere of its own. I suppose we will never quite know what it's like. Modern tastes have demanded a certain level of lighting, and so we must amplify our imitation candlelight to an acceptable degree. And uh, it also brings in a challenge where one has to create props, as we call them in the business, where you have a candelabra, or you have a great big chandelier, which uh, was designed, and it's approximately sort of six foot from tip to tip with eight branches on it. Now, if one was to get the real thing, it would 
Waitons and would be a special job. So you have to recreate it from lighter materials and bits and pieces. Uh, I hate to give away secrets, but our our magnificent chandelier is made from plant pots and shrub holders and various bits of light plywood and wire and imagination, if you like. And when you stir it all up in the pot and add the lighting to it, the audience accept this and it will have the gilt and the glitter of the theatre of the time. We would like to remind you begins in After six weeks comes opening night and the contrast between the bustle in the foyer and the confident voice of stage director Rona Woodcock before curtain up. Five minutes, please. Five minutes, please. Beginners on stage, please. Beginners on stage, please. Stand by lights and sound. Stand by light cues. One. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please take your seats? The performance will begin in three minutes. Stand by number two, Throth. Stand by control. Stand by light cues one, two, three, four, and five. Stand by sound cue one. Stand by fly cue one. Beginners on stage, please. Stage staff, stand by, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you must ask you to take your seats. The performance is about to begin. 